I'm going to read Daniel 3, verse 1 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Thank you very much, Alan, and thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are we this morning? British weather has returned. 
And uh, I've realized as well that the, uh, the geese outside my chalet at the beginning of this week were in fact Baptist geese. Quite enthusiastic, but very uh, orderly with it. There's a new lot that showed up this morning, and they are definitely charismatics. Uh, I also need to mention that uh, I appreciate um, this penalty charge notice that was uh, affixed to my car windscreen. I saw it at a distance, and I did cry, Hosanna. And uh, inside it was a, a, a lovely note that, uh, that was very kind. But this does mean that there is one among us, ladies and gentlemen, who has had a penalty charge notice in recent days. Pray this prayer with me. Lord, is it I? So thank you for that message which uh, was actually very nice. Some of you know that uh, I mentioned that I um, live um, in Colorado, and living in Colorado can be a bit of a challenge on the wild animal front. I was mentioning the geese, but it's nothing compared with Colorado. There we have 21 different species of snakes, including uh, rattlesnakes. I was out walking recently with Kay, my wife, and uh, we were just walking along the road, uh, talking together, uh, singing hymns, and <laughs> and I got about two inches away from treading on a bull snake. It was sunbathing on the pavement, and I didn't notice it. It, it must have been, I, I think, about 45 foot long, something like that, and about that thick, and I wrestled it to the ground and bit its head off. It reminded me of the time I went camping with uh, our family to a state park in Oregon. And Kelly, our daughter, she's married now, but she was about 10 then. And she said, Daddy, can we, can we sleep outside tonight by the campfire on our, on our camp beds, me and you? And I said, yeah, we can do that. And the fire embers are, are dimming, and uh, she's just about to drift off to sleep. And she said, Daddy, there aren't any snakes here, are there? And I said, no, darling, it's a state park. They're not allowed. A stupid statement, like the snakes see a sign that says no snakes, and they go, oh, okay, right. Yeah. And um, I woke up the next morning in my sleeping bag, all snuggled up, nice and warm, and I didn't realize my, my camp bed was parked over a snake nest, and four of them did slither out, and once again I did say Hosanna. Daniel faced something far more challenging on the old animal front, really, you know, ravenously hungry lions. And things aren't going at all well for his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They end up in the furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Let's do a little recap. We saw, didn't we, <clears throat> from Daniel chapter 1, <clears throat> that exile began with displacement and subtle uh, seduction. The challenge of, of Daniel 1 really is the challenge of assimilation rather than confrontation in the place of exile. And then yesterday, um, how many of you were here the first day? Raise your hand if you were here. How many of you were here yesterday? How many of you are going to possibly win the new car and be here tomorrow? Well done. We saw yesterday as we looked chiastically. Um, just say that word with me, chiastically. 
You can impress your friends with that. You can go out of here today, have coffee and say, we've been doing some chiastic studies, you know. We've been looking chiastically at Daniel 2 and 7, dreams of kings and prophets. And we saw Nebuchadnezzar dreaming dreams that Daniel interpreted. And then Daniel himself, 50 to 60 years later, uh, under the reign of Belshazzar, dreaming a parallel dream. You remember yesterday, both of those dreams uh, about four earthly kingdoms. And then the rock of the kingdom of God, the revelation of the ancient of days and the cloud riding son of man who sets up a kingdom greater than all of those that will last forever and ever. And we saw yesterday that there is revelation in exile, God speaking, God actively revealing his heart purposes and indeed the unfolding of history to those in exile. Today, as right across this site, we are considering the theme of pressure, we will see, obviously from here, that indeed there is pressure in exile. And I think it does us good to stop and reflect again on these stories, familiar as they are. They remind us that not only is the believer not exempted from the severest of pressures, but that actually sometimes we encounter more pressure because we are followers of Christ. And I think we need to reflect on that because there's something about pressure that is still always a surprise. In 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I wonder if Peter had the furnace story in the back of his mind when he wrote those words. The words fiery trial there, they are the rendering of a word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the translation of Proverbs 27, 21, where that word means a smelting furnace. Peter says, don't be surprised at the furnace days. I wonder whether he was reflecting on the the story in Daniel when he wrote that. In this world, you shall have trouble, says Jesus in John 16 and verse 33, which is probably not your favorite verse, is it? You've probably not, we've not got that stuck to the refrigerator. We don't say, oh, that's, that's a great promise. But pressure is part of the deal. Kay does not allow me to watch certain Christian television programs in America. Uh, she has banned me from doing that now. Uh, mainly because she doesn't enjoy the sight of cornflakes dripping down the front of the television. (laughs) And I confess, my brothers and sisters, that I do get sometimes uh, perturbed. When the impression is given, and it's not an American problem by any means, it's an international problem, this impression is given that as believers we are exempt from pressure. I heard a a television evangelist recently using the analogy of an air traffic controller telling pilots how they can avoid the turbulence. And he was announcing how the Holy Spirit can tell him how he can avoid the pressure and turbulence of life. And I'm thinking, that's absolutely fantastic for you, pal. So what happened to all of these people in the Bible? Was their radio broken? Very often it seems that they are steered into pressure. There's so much that we can learn from them. So where will we go today? How are we going to work with this? First of all, we're going to take a fly by the furnace. We're going to have a quick look at the furnace 
episode. Then we'll drop by the lion's den. And um, then we'll realize, by the way, in, in, in handling these two things together, our chiastic approach today is highly appropriate because these stories are actually bracketed together in Hebrews 11, 33 and 34, where it says that those by faith shut the mouths of lions and quench the fury of the flames. The New Testament chiastically links these two episodes. And then we're going to draw some lessons about faith under pressure uh, from them both. As we do this, uh, let's realize that once again, the Bible is so practically applicable to us in our everyday lives. And it may be that right now, you find yourself facing pressure, not just the general pressures of life, but specific pressure that's been created because you are someone who bows the knee to the Lord Jesus. And I really do pray today that you will be encouraged as we consider these things together. First of all, let's fly then by the furnace, chapter 3. Have you got your Bibles again? Let me just check. A little waving of Bibles, please, again. People are getting even more creative with the things that they're waving. It's really good. If anybody's got any cough mixture, could you wave that and bring it up here, please? Chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar... By the way, that's a joke, because someone surely has, and I know they're going to pop up here in a minute. So, so you know, it could look like boots up here in a few seconds, so uh, let's not do that. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Things have gone downhill somewhat with Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense. Uh, the interval between the dream of Daniel 2 and the event here in Daniel 3, most commentators would say it's around 19 years. Nebuchadnezzar is riding high. He has just finished the Jewish and Syrian wars, the spoils of which would uh, furnish him with the resources needing, needed to make this colossal statue, maybe of solid gold, most likely plated. Possibly of himself, that was a practice of some of the kings of the day. At one level, we shouldn't be too shocked by what Nebuchadnezzar does here. Um, his confession earlier of God, in his thinking, did not prevent him from uh, practicing idolatry, tragically. Ancient idolaters felt like every nation had its own gods and that there were foreign gods too and that they could be worshipped, a kind of uh, spiritual smorgasbord approach. It was only the Jewish religion that was the only exclusive one that claimed all homage for Jehovah as the only true God. And also this tendency towards self-idolatry is a very human tendency as well. People do it. Denominations do it. Nations do it. Balder von Schirach declared in 1936 in an article in the Times, listen to this. He said, one cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. And he said this, If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. How tragic the impact of those words was. Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, observes, how every nation is inclined to make an idol of its own inner spirit. And Israel's calling was to erect a throne to God 
rather than to itself. Which is why, as Buber says, every nation is bound to desire to get rid of us at the time when it's in the act of setting itself up as the absolute. What we see here in the book of Daniel, the thinking here, this is the thinking which provides the seeds of the Holocaust, this self-idolatry. Where's Daniel? Well, he does not appear. I think fairly unbelievably, some commentators, just a few, suggest that he might have actually bowed the knee. I would suggest, as many commentators suggest, that we have no reason to believe that whatsoever, particularly as we consider the broad character of Daniel. Probably he was in some distant part of the empire on state business, and this general summons had not had time to reach him. It's also a political likelihood that the enemies of the Jews would go for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego first before going for the kingpin, Daniel, later. They'd try and pick off those on the edges rather than go for the bullseye. You might have smiled as you heard our reading shared, read so beautifully earlier, when all that repetition comes out. You might have thought, why do they, why do they keep repeating that in the text? Through repetition... The narrator creates a scenario in which conformity is normative. Disobedience is unthinkable. That's why you get all that stuff in verses 2 and 3. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the other provincial officials assembled. You think, you're probably tempted to be a little impatient and think, we've actually got it. We know they all showed up. You see, what's happening here is the writer is building tension. He is saying, look, everybody was summoned and everybody bowed the knee. There's the same sense of pomp and stately ceremony in the occasion. As soon as you hear verse 5, the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. Once again, the narrator is saying, look, this is, this is a really, really big deal. And to mess up that special day would be terrifyingly embarrassing, expose you to public ridicule, ridicule, and also, obviously in this context, you'd die for it as well. I, I, I can understand that, being in that meeting that Steve Chalk arranged with Tony Blair last week. Will you understand my heart when I tell you that just before Mr. Blair came in, I turned my phone off five times? Do you understand that? Because it's like... Don't want to get this one wrong. Or as a minister officiating at a wedding. I'm always mildly traumatized by that because I know if I'm going to mess it up, then that dear couple will remember me for the rest of their days. I had a wonderful story about a minister who was wearing a radio mic and he wasn't terribly confident in the marriage at which he'd just officiated. And he, they did the vows and then they processed down the aisle at the end, the minister following the bride and groom with his curate alongside him. Forgetting he had a radio mic, he turned to his colleague and said, I'll give this one six months. <laughs> they gave him a hostile reception at the reception. What a thing to do on such a day. I'm so pleased I told you that story because that little woo that you just involuntarily expelled magnified a thousand times. And that's what happened when three Hebrews said, No.
And the drama is heightened by the description of the furnace. It's blazing, verse 11. It's heated seven times hotter than usual, verse 19. It's so hot that the soldiers who are guarding the three are killed, verse 22. In, in linguistic terms, it's like, dun, dun, dun. That was what you just experienced then was the beginning and the end of my musical career. Commentators usually assume that the furnace was metal and beehive shaped with an opening at the top into which men were thrown and a door at the side uh, through which uh, what was happening could be seen. The burning of criminals frequently referred to throughout Babylonian and Persian and Greek periods. Death by fire, uh, a common mode of punishment in Babylon. Jeremiah speaks of Zedekiah and Ahab in Jeremiah 29, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. This is pressure, people. So how did they do? Well, they're respectful, but very firm. Look with me, verses 16 through 18. They refused to bow the knee. We are mistaken, my brothers and sisters, if we simply think that the big miracle here is the deliverance from the furnace. I would suggest to you that the twin miracle here is their stand for God in the first place. It is stunning. Commentators have noted that these three young men would probably not have had a developed hope of judgment, resurrection, or reward. It is possible that they did not have a a theologically developed understanding of life after death. They just won't bow the knee, and that's that. They won't apologize, verse 16. We don't need to give you an answer concerning this. They confess their allegiance to God, verse 17, our God whom we serve. They testify to God's bigness and power. Our God is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. The Hebrew text conveys the strongest possible assurance. He is infinitely able to rescue us, but they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. But even if he does not, they say, verse 18, and they declare unwavering fidelity to God. Even if he does not, let it be known we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Their faith was unconditional. They did not have a quid pro quo relationship with God. They're not going to bow the knee to an idol anyway. And there's tension again. Because in verse 21, they are thrown into the fire wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. Why are we told that? Obviously, those clothes, there's another reason for this. I'll share that with you later. But those clothes were highly combustible. And they are thrown into the fire. And notice this, if you study the text, the soldiers are the strongest. Literally, the text is the most forceful he-men in the forces. The soldiers are the strongest. The fire is at its hottest. And the ropes are at their tightest. You see, for the Hebrew reader, the tension is almost unbearable. And then in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar jumps to his feet. He's amazed because there are four people in the fire. And it's almost Pythonesque <laughs> because they're strolling around in the fire, walking on the wild side. And the king, get this, the king has to tell them to come out. Would you not agree with me? That's a bit odd. How many of you love to go to the dentist? Raise your hand. 
How many of you, like me, pray for Jesus to come back before I have to go? I've been to the dentist about 12 times in the last 12 weeks. I, I, I've got to really know my dentist. He doesn't tell me the truth. He tells me it's not going to hurt. He says, all right, I'm going to give you an injection. The injection hurts. Would you agree? It's difficult, isn't it, to believe a man who says he's not going to hurt you when he's got about 50 pounds of stainless steel stuck in your face. It really is quite a, a challenge. And when I get to the end of my dental appointment and he says, all right, Jeff, you're done. I want to kiss him. I don't say, oh, no, 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 please. Give me another filling. How about a root canal? Maybe an extraction without anesthetic. Come on, bring it on. He says, no, no, you can go now. The king says to these guys strolling around in a fire, come out. It's bizarre. And the only thing that's burned up is the ropes that bound them. That's interesting. A royal decree is issued honoring Yahweh and promotion for the three comes and the episode draws to a conclusion. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. Let's drop by the lion's den for some minutes. Turn over with me to Daniel 6, if you would. Daniel 6 is now a different period of history. The Babylonian rulers have gone. Now it's Darius, a Persian. There's a problem with his name. He's, he doesn't appear in many tablets of stone that have been found contemporaneous to the time. Most likely it's a throne name that's been given generically to the king. Daniel's in a high place of authority, one of three commissioners probably around 82 years of age at this time. I need to pause before I go any further and say something which is not in my notes, has got nothing to do with this Bible reading at all, but I need to say it anyway. Daniel is 82 years of age at this time. I thank God for every young person that's at Spring Harvest this year. It's so wonderful to see you, your vitality, your energy, your passion for God. I thank God for you. I thank God for a uh, all of you folks who are uh, everything in between, young and old. But I want to just take a moment because so often um, our seniors can be made to feel that it's a young person's world these days. And if we're not careful, we forget. And this has got nothing to do with this, but I just want to say it. Sometimes our seniors are the ones who have traveled an incredible journey. They've sung songs that they didn't like. Some of their traditions and their lovely hymns were mocked. They have had to go on a journey of change which has been uncomfortable. And in so many cases, they have done so with kindness and grace. And I hope that when I uh, go into my 40s, that I will be... <laughs> more seriously, I hope when I... Uh, reach my senior years, that I will have the dignity and flexibility that many of you, dear ones, have exhibited. And I just want to take a moment this morning to say to you, thank you for being you. You are valuable. We need you. And we thank the Lord for you. More senior folks here, take that applause spontaneously from us as a very real affirmation of you. 
and of your value. Daniel is 82 years of age at this time. Follow it through with me. We'll just look at it briefly. There's political jealousy, verses 1 through 5. There's a, a setup, a decree that is manufactured that cannot be reversed. Can I just point out to you that we are once again being introduced to tension here, a decree that cannot, cannot be reversed. Daniel prays anyway, privately in his home, windows open, facing uh, the, the temple the derelict temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's now reported to the king who tries to save Daniel, verses 11 through 15. He's finally thrown into the lion's den, verses 16 through 17. And again, the tension rises. The den is covered with a stone, sealed with the king's signet ring. And the lions are definitely hungry because later on, when others are thrown in there, they are overpowered, their, bro- their bones broken before they even hit the ground. Some commentators have noticed that the king has a worse night than Daniel. He goes home to his palace, has a tough night, he's agitated. We're not told very much about what happens that night in the lion pit. We know from what Daniel says, an angel came and shut the mouths of the lions, but that's all we know. The king shows up in the morning, calls to Daniel, who affirms his innocence, is lifted out of the den And again, there's another decree that's issued, verse 25, calling for Daniel's God to be honored, and Daniel continues to prosper. Let me make one simple little observation before we move on from this. Sometimes this text is used as a proof text to demand the right to pray publicly in state and governmental occasions. Uh, The challenge in the USA, of prayer not being allowed in schools, sometimes this text is used to defend the right to pray in public. May I gently and perhaps controversially say, whatever you believe about that issue, don't use this text as a proof text concerning that. Because Daniel went home and prayed in private. He doesn't ask for prayer in the Babylonian training school or the royal palace. And the three Hebrews at the furnace, they won't bow the knee to idols, neither do they insist that everybody prays to their God. Tremper Longman, a commentator, very controversially says, and I'm going to just... I'm going to just offer this to you for your thought and consideration. I'm not making a statement of agreement or disagreement, but just think think about this. He says, we as Christians should be campaigning against prayer in schools and against nativity scenes at the town hall because we don't want the state to legislate or hijack our faith. It doesn't work very well. Christendom shows us that. When the state decrees, you will believe there are intrinsic problems that go along with that. Now, I throw that out for your thinking and for your consideration. I'm not suggesting, uh, it's a very complex issue, I'm just bringing to you uh, a comment that needs to be made that this is not a proof text for the demand of public prayer. You may say, I may say, there are others, but that's not under discussion right now. So let's think about lessons about faith under pressure. What about us? What about you? Living in the UK today, the likelihood is, the reality is, that we face pressure rather than persecution. Perhaps for you as a Christian, 
your allegiance to Jesus means that there are rumors that go round about you in your workplace, your school, your home. That snide comments are made. There might be occasional acts of aggression. What can we learn from these two episodes that can help us authentically stand under pressure in our day? A few things. First of all, let's make sure that the pressure is not self-created. Will you forgive me if I, if I mention that there are some Christians who are, who are persecuted, who, are, um, who face pressure and criticism, and they think it's because of Jesus. But in some cases, it's not Jesus at all. It's them. Don't say... You're suffering for Jesus if your obnoxiousness is actually the problem. Now, I say that with a smile. I say that kindly. But it is true. Daniel is not persecuted because he's bad. He's persecuted because he's good. Daniel 6.4. Listen to this. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. They were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. We've got to face the challenge lest we rush to just become self-declared martyrs for the gospel that sometimes we get hassled because we're rude, obnoxious and boring. And it would be helpful if you didn't nudge the person next to you as I say that. I, I, and I want to confess to you, that was, has been true for me. When I first became a Christian, I worked for, for Barclays Bank. I was useless at it. And I got all kinds of grief initially in, in the bank. But most of it was nothing to do with Jesus. It was me. I was, I, I was obnoxious for Jesus. I'd twist every conversation around to Jesus. It must have driven them mad. We'd be sitting in the lunchroom. Would you like one of my cheese sandwiches, Jeff? No, thank you. I have the bread of life. Hallelujah. <laughs> and some Christians get hassled because it's nothing to do with Jesus. It's because they act like they're constipated all the time. Sort of uptight, aggressive, angry. You know, I've got this joy in my heart. You all need it. <laughs> Let's just make sure that we are not creating the pressure ourselves. It's worth saying Daniel was a man of excellence. His persecution came because of his faith not because of his character. Secondly, let's realize that pressure will always demand boldness from us. That there needs to be moments, my brothers and sisters, where we are willing to stand up for what we believe and lovingly communicate that. And I want to make a comment here. I think we need to get evangelism back. You see, 30 years ago, we were all talking 30 years ago. We, we, we'd say... Oh, I had a wonderful conversation with Fred at work this week. I talked to him about Jesus. Please pray for Fred. And we had, these, we, we had this sense that we wanted to gossip the gospel. And, and then we discovered this thing wonderfully called friendship evangelism. I'm always a bit nervous about that terminology because it sounds, sounds a bit like a dastardly plot, doesn't it? Aha, 
Let's go find a few pagans. Give them the impression we really like them. And friendship evangelism just becomes friendship. And people think we're nice, but there is no gospel clarity or challenge whatsoever in those relationships. And we thank God for Alpha and for so many other initiatives which have helped people take a journey into faith. Absolutely incredible. How we thank God for those initiatives. But is it possible that we have lost our ability ourselves to speak up for the gospel and that we need to recover some of that boldness? We need to start saying so more. Now, I say that to you and I feel bound to confess to you that I mess it up all the time. How many of you have ever had an opportunity to say something for the Lord to somebody and you messed it up? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Come forward. Look at you all. This place is loaded with messed up evangelists. Forgive me, some of you heard me talk about this before, but um, I, I, I don't like traveling with evangelists because it's dangerous and embarrassing. And I was sitting on this flight with an evangelist to my left and this dear lady was sitting to my right. We've not been introduced, but I know that she's nervous about flying, not because I have a spiritual gift of uh, discernment or actually a word of knowledge or something, but because she's actually eating the in-flight magazine. So... I know she's a bit nervous, and the plane takes off, and my evangelist friend digs me in the ribs. <laughs> the woman next to you is nervous. I said, I know that. She's snacking on paper. What do you want me to do about it? He said, tell her you're a Christian, and offer to pray for her. I said, No. See, I wish I didn't have to say this stuff, Alan. I, I wish I could tell you, yes, and I turned to her and I led her to the Lord and the whole plane cried out, what must we do to be saved? And I don't want to tell you this story. I want, but I have to. So we carried on flying. We hit a patch of turbulence and the plane went up and the woman screamed, Ah! The woman next to you just screamed. I said, I know, oh, you with the brains of a gerbil. It was in my ear. He said, offer to pray for her. I said, she's going to think I'm trying to pick her up. Hello, darling, can I pray for you? Probably not a very successful chat-up line, really. We carried on flying. We hit a patch of turbulence again. The woman screamed, Arr! and grabbed my hand and would not let go. And I'm sitting there. Well, we're British. We've not been introduced. The woman next to you is holding your hand. I said, I know, it's my hand. He said, pray for us. I said, you pray for her. I'm holding her hand. I'm doing my bit. (laughs) 
he leaned over. He said, he said, excuse me. He said, um, he said, forgive me for just interrupting. He said, but um, my friend and I are Christians. And he gave me a look as if to say, possibly. <laughs> he said, um, he said, would you like us to pray for you? She said, oh, yes, please, would you? Now, why can't evangelists pray quietly? He could have just bowed his head and quietly, Lord, we commit this lady to you. Suddenly you get this, in the name of Jesus, we speak peace to this woman. And as he shouted, peace, everyone turned around and looked at me. And I'm just sitting there holding her hand going, oh, all right. We need, if indeed we survive this flood, <laughs> to say it more. Thirdly, know that you don't always have to defend yourself. We do not, chapter 3, verse 16, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. You know, one of the problems is that we, we end up sometimes getting drawn into arguments and we're, we're too busy trying to win every argument rather than actually hear the heartbeat of the person behind the statement. And I've also found, if, I'm, if I may make an aside, I'm starting to learn that I don't always have to defend myself when Christians have a bit of a go at me. I was in a meeting two weeks ago. Some of you in this tent were in that meeting. And a musician was playing. And there was a gentleman in the meeting who didn't like the musician. And so he said, stood up and loud enough for two or three rows around him to hear, he said, this is rubbish and I'm not listening to this anymore and stomped out. And I made the mistake of the evening. I followed him out. So I thought, I need to have a little chat. That's not very kind. And as I walked up to him, he said, before you say anything, I've got a big problem with you too. He said, call yourself a preacher. Here's the names of five preachers you need to listen to. Four of them are dead, so it's difficult to get in touch, but that's, a, that's another issue. And then he looked at me and he said, you know what? You're nothing. You're nothing. He was very eloquent, actually. He said, you use a million words to walk a hundred yards. You're nothing. And this overwhelming weariness swept over me. And I felt like nothing. And I felt like I, I needed to somehow justify my existence. And so I said, resisting that temptation, please give me your hand and share a moment of grace with me before you leave. And he took my hand. And if you're thinking that was pretty good, to be honest with you, inside, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to slap him. I think God wanted me to slap him. 
I think even if God didn't want me to slap him, I don't care. I wanted to slap him anyway. So I don't share this with you to be some kind of, you know, oh, what a blessed thing to do. I was really scared. I, you know, I'm thinking this bloke's head's about to revolve. This is getting scary. But I realized in that moment, I didn't have to defend myself in that matter. By the way, just as an aside before we move on, some of you have been told that you're nothing. And some of you feel like you're nothing. And my Bible tells me that you are hereby worth dying for. And you need to hear that and know that. We experience the power of community when we're under pressure. The God that we serve, said the Hebrew 3. I, I just want to reaffirm to you that we in Spring Harvest are really committed to the local church. We want to see the local church strengthened and encouraged and blessed. We don't want to join that crowd of voices that is constantly carping on about how bad the church is. The church needs to grow and change, but it's not them, it's us, it's we, it's us together. Why do we exempt ourselves from the need to grow? Let's commit ourselves to the power of community. Totally committed, I believe, we need to be to a local family, a community where we can be strengthened in the times of pressure. Let's commit to faithfulness and not to a prescribed outcome. Would you notice that the Hebrew 3, they're basically saying God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow the knee anyway. Some people gamble all of their faith on one prescribed outcome. If you heal my friend, my parent, then I'm going to believe in you, God. And if you don't, I will walk away from you. I have a friend who has done just that. But this is a marvelous faith here under pressure. Because they are saying, God can do it, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. We're going to trust them anyway. And I know that I am looking into the eyes of people here today. And you're living with a, even if he doesn't, kind of faith. Because right now he hasn't. And I believe the Lord wants to encourage you in that. As you've committed yourself to faithfulness, not a prescribed outcome. As we begin to draw this in the next few minutes to a conclusion, know that God is with you in the pressure. Do you remember that statement in uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 11 from the magicians? They said, the gods don't dwell among men. But we realized yesterday, didn't we, that Daniel, as he receives that revelation, contradicts that distant God idea. God is very much among them. And in the fire, uh, the Jews identify the fourth person as an angel. Christians normally uh, regard this as a manifestation of Christ, a Christophany. And there's an angel in the lion's den. The reality is, whatever we feel, and sometimes we feel something and sometimes we feel a profound absence of feelings, we affirm that God is with us in the pressure. And then finally, we need to learn to celebrate when we're under pressure. It interests me and it interests the commentators that when the boys go into the flames, they're wearing turbans and festal clothing. Robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. Sharp-eyed commentators have noted that that's the clothing you wear to a celebration. They go into the flames in party gear. 
they walk on the wild side. And I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. That's that idea we picked up earlier. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, let's not get into some weird reflection on that. You know, oh, I stubbed my toe um, on the ironing board this morning, as I did, and I say, oh Lord, I thank you for I have stubbed my toe. I am now growing in you as a result of this miniature tribulation Hallelujah. Let's not pretend. Went to a church one time and popped into the loo and there's a man in the loo and he's, he's, um, he's not in the loo. I thought I'd got through this one without, without trouble. Um, there's a man in the bathroom and he is um, wrestling with the toweling machine, Beelzebub, the toweling machine. And he's all sort of wrapped up, you know. And I said, hello, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then he said this. He said, we have to be, don't we? We have to be. And I thought, no. You don't have to be. You don't have to be fine. You can be fed up, bored. Fine, victorious. You can't even get out of the toweling machine. <laughs> and I left the bathroom and left him where he probably still remains to this day. <laughs> I went out into the meeting and somebody stood up to testify. And they said, this week I got kicked in the head by a sheep, praise God. Everybody, the congregation, collective madness descended because they all went, Amen. Amen. May, may we, O oh Lord, also be mugged by skinhead fleeces. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about calling what is bad good. I'm not talking about somehow superficially trying to grin your way through that cancer treatment. I'm not talking about that. But when we suffer, when we're under pressure, specifically for our faith, but generally, Scripture calls us to worship anyway. You see, even if the three had died in the flames, the king would not have won. Because they refused to bow the knee, whatever the outcome. As we finish today, and Alan in a moment comes to pray for us. We will have pressure. It's part of the deal. God is with us and can help us to worship, to trust, and even to praise him. As those dressed for a party while still strolling around in the flames.